uh, before we get going forward, since there are some new faces here and I'll be seeing some folks online, I did just want to take a minute to kind of kind of reintroduce the book of Mark so we know who's writing this, what, where this is coming from. I think it's helpful. I, like, I don't know about you, but I like when I'm reading Scripture, especially when we're in the Gospels, I like to put myself there. Do, do you do that? Kind of put yourself in the crowd and kind of see, what, see it from that perspective. So uh, the, the book of Mark is a very short gospel. It's the shortest of all the gospels, 16-chapter uh, description of the only good news that this world has. Amen? And it's written by John Mark, not our John Mark, of course. Uh, and it was, uh, he is, uh, the, uh, his mother was Mary of Jerusalem, and she owned a house there that the Christians often used at a meeting place. And it is, there's some speculation out there that the upper room could have been in her house, but there's not anything definitive in there to say, uh, in, 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 in research to say absolutely that that was the case. Mark, now keep in mind, Mark was not an eyewitness to what he is writing. He is writing what his mentor, uh, his father figure, Peter, was telling him has taken place, very close to him. In fact, Mark was only about 12 years old, somewhere in that vicinity, when Jesus was crucified. So he could have been, there's nothing we have in Scripture to say he was in the crowd, but he could have been in the crowds because of what was going on. A lot of people would gather, so he could have been in the crowd, but not up front with the rest. Um, But this book basically comes from his relationship with Peter and the stories that Peter would tell. In fact, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, he calls him uh, my son Mark. He looked, it was that close of a relationship. It is the shortest gospel that we have, and uh, just 16 chapters. Uh, Matthew has 28, Luke has 24, and John has 21. And if you're a good reader, if you can kind of got a good flow of reading, it's said that you can read the entire book of Mark in about an hour and a half. I would encourage you to do that because as we study through this, it's really good. I don't know if you've done that before to read an entire gospel to get the full context of what we're reading and so you can read it. And Mark moves fast. Mark moves very fast. Um, he is the, his gospel is that we would call it the gospel condensed. In fact, it is uh, often one of the books that's first translated into a new language because of its brevity uh, or how short that it can be. Um, there's a lot of the same stories are shared, uh, barring a few, but uh, Mark has a much more colorful way of approaching some of the things, a little bit more on a personal way that he describes things. As an example, the way Jesus looked at the disciples or how he was angry, how he walked ahead on the road to Jerusalem. And no doubt those were things that Peter shared with him. Um, he emphasizes, as we go through Scripture, he emphasizes the deeds and the works and the actions of Jesus more than his words. In fact, in Mark, there's recorded 19 miracles, but only four parables. So here we are, book of Mark, chapter 3. Now, as we approach the Gospels, especially Mark, there are sections where there is deep, deep, deep theological thing, principles that we have to struggle over. And then there's times when it's just narrative. And that's what we're at kind of in the book of uh, chapter 3 of Mark is that it's narrative as if, as if Mark was behind him and making notes on what he was seeing as he followed Jesus through. But here's something I, I, we were talking about this as we, uh, Pastor Jim and Pastor John and I all study together. And it's one of the things where you, I, I can't leave a piece of scripture without looking for some application 
to go to put into practice. And so there are applications as we go through this, but it is important that we understand the life of Jesus. Can I tell you something? You have a responsibility. If you are saved, you are a representative of Jesus Christ. Amen? And this world ain't getting any lighter. It's getting darker as we go forward, and you need to understand even what happened on Jesus' journeys because you never know what's going to fit a particular situation when you're talking to somebody and in sh- wanting to share the gospel. You never know what door's going to open up. Or maybe they just want to know who this Jesus is and how do you know he really existed. And, and so it's important for us to understand the gospels like Mark. Amen? So we jump into Mark. Now, Jesus, just we, last week, Pastor Jim taught the latter half of, of chapter 2 where he's dealing with these Pharisees, these teachers of the law who are just walking along and nitpicking everything. And, you know, I don't know if you, you've ever thought about this, but, you know, as we read through Scripture, there, there, are, there, are, there are conversations and things that happen that they didn't write down. I mean, this is just men. They're everyday men. We, I used to think to see the disciples as kind of joking around and, and cutting up and trying to tell Jesus jokes. And I mean, all of those things were probably happening as we went along. We only get what the writer seemed uh, to believe was the most important things. But they are important. So in Mark, as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3, we read about Jesus dealing with these traditions of man again from these Pharisees. Let's read. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around uh, at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot against, uh, plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what do we, what do we see here? Well, it's the synagogues where the meeting place is. As he, as he traveled around that vicinity, that area, he would go into the synagogue and, and we see these important, well, the people that thought they were important that were sitting up front. Obviously, nobody's sitting up front here, so none of you feel that you're important uh, or more important than anybody else. I always joke with my wife when I preach, she's supposed to sit up front. Where's she at? She's not sitting up front. She's not in the front row. And it was the tradition for the more important people to take the more important seats up front. And I think that's important for us to understand because Jesus goes in front of them all. Jesus goes in front of them all and, and I'm sure they were cast at, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? And, and I believe that Jesus was growing very tired of these men and their constant nitpicking at everything that was going on around them. They were missing the entire intent, the whole entire reason that he was there. And in this case, as was everywhere that Jesus went, there was somebody that needed some healing in the room. It was only one at this time. There had been so many other, this man with this shriveled hand. And we see that it says the, the Pharisees that we're talking about here, they watched him closely. They watched him closely not to see what he was going to do, not to see the move of God, 
not to hear something amazing, but to find something that they could pick apart that he might do. They knew what he was going to do. They knew that he could heal. He'd already proven that as he traveled around. There was no doubt that he could heal. They had, that, that, that scared them that he had this kind of power. It wasn't that he could heal. They wanted to know, is he going to break our tradition because you can't do that on the Sabbath? Jesus was angry. And, you know, this is one of just like, I think about three times in the Gospels that we see that Jesus got angry. His anger, we know, has to be if Jesus got angry, we know that he didn't sin in his anger. How often do we, how often do we sin in our anger? It's what you do with it. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And of course, we know Jesus didn't sin, and his anger was not at something trivial. He was, he was angry because of the hypocrisy, the legalism, the fault-finding, the lack of compassion that these men who were following around and now sat right in front of him, and he saw their mumblings and their whisperings. He was angry because they wouldn't hear the message that he had to say. And then he asks him the question, hey, what do you think? Is it lawful to, uh, to do good on the Sabbath, to save a life? Now, this was not a life-saving moment. This man was not going to die from his shriveled hand. But it was going to be life-changing for him, obviously. Now, according to the Sabbath traditions, this is how weird it got. I don't know if Pastor Jim shared this last week or not, but this is how weird it gets with their Sabbath traditions. They believe that if you cut your finger on the Sabbath that you could put a Band-Aid on it, okay? You could stop the bleeding, but you could not put any salve or healing ointment on it. So a Band-Aid, no Neosporin. Can't put that on there. How silly that is. You could could stop it from causing more damage, but you couldn't heal it because that's healing on the Sabbath. And to cement his point, he pulls this man up in front of everybody. Just to... Simple, whoever he was, nobody important, and pulls him up in front of everybody. And I believe, I kind of, I kind, as I read this, I kind of felt a little bit bad for the guy with the healing, that got the healing done, because that, that, that was what it was all about. And I believe that Jesus was angry enough with these, these Pharisees that he, that we're going to prove a point. I'm going to show you something. And he pulls this man up, and he heals him. And I, I got to believe that the people that were there in the back were just so moved. And they knew the traditions that the Pharisees had in place. They knew what those were. And here God, here here this man was was breaking these traditions down to do the will of the Father. How amazing. This angered these people so much. Talk about taking your anger and and sinning in it. That they coupled with some of their arch enemy, the, the Herodians, the Pharisees came along with the Herodians to plot Jesus' death. Now the Herodians were wealthy and influential Jews who favored the dynasty of the Herods, meaning that they were supporters of Rome, from which the family of, of, of Herod the Great got its power. Usually the Pharisees and the Herodians were on the opposite ends of the political spectrum, and they hated each other. But because of this, because they hated him so much, because he was breaking down their traditions and not, not following the status quo that they wanted him to die, not just to kick him out of there, but they wanted him to die. And then we read on in verse 7. 
And again, these are, keep these in mind. These are not like he just stepped out of the synagogue and then this happened next. These are, sometimes there's some space in between these happenings, but they're the important ones that, that Mark and Peter felt that were the most important, and that's why it moves so quickly. But now we see that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, uh, Adamae, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he uh, told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed so many and so that those with diseases were pushing to try and touch him. And whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others around him. Now, got to get this boat, got to get offshore to kind of distance himself from the people. Because he was there and he was healing. And that's what we're drawing in all these people. We're, not, we're moving from probably when he first started a handful of people that started following him, then into the hundreds. This is pi- quite possibly in the thousands of people that, that were gathering around Jesus. They were coming from across the country. Uh, the, the area of Idame is about, uh, from my calculation, about 160 to 180 miles away that people were coming to see this man who was healing. And I'm sure that was the main message that was going out. And what, throws, what, what kind of blows me is we, we, we live in a different world right now. I can get message to another country in just a couple minutes. I can text, I can post it, I can send. This, that didn't happen then. This was, came by word of mouth. It came by people who were traveling from that area down into other areas to be able to tell them. And I'm sure you wouldn't just have one person riding by horseback going, hey, there's this guy healing people and everybody went. There was a lot of people coming and going from that area. And possibly because they got what they came for and then they left. But they they came for possibly just healing. The question comes into mind is what, I'll ask this question to you, what, what, what brought you to Jesus initially? There's a lot of things that can bring us into the house of God or to ask questions or to go to the Word. There's a lot of, of, of things that can, can, can pull us in that direction. I was, I've been watching a lot of what's going on in the Ukraine and, and, and uh, with Russia and all of that, and they've, they've got lots of trenches in there, like they used to in other wars, a lot of trenches. And that brought to mind the other day when I was watching some little video about uh, trench faith. That you would want God to come. I want God now because I want him to rescue from me from this. I have a brother who's spent, um, who's been incarcerated uh, over five times in prison. Uh, he is, he's out now. He's, he's a good boy now and he's serving the Lord. But there was a time when he went to, go, went to Christ because he wanted to get out. He was hoping that this would release him quickly and it didn't. And then he kind of pushed to the side. So there's a lot of reasons that we can come to Jesus. But what he was doing in this healing and the casting out of demons was because he had a, he had a message to share. He had a truth that he wanted. So it doesn't matter what brought you. I just hope that you're here today because you want to have more. It's not just about healing. And healing does happen, mind you. I completely believe in healing, okay? 
But God heals in a lot of different ways. We've had prayer up here. We do this. And I want to let you know, since we're talking about healing and about the, this, this, the Savior that we have that heals, that we believe in healing here too. The Bible says that if something is going on in your life, that there's something that needs healed, that you come and ask the elders and we gather around you. We'll anoint you with oil and we'll pray. We do that all the time. We'll even do that today if you have something that you want to pray about. And God has done miraculous things. Sometimes he just gets somebody through a surgery that needs to happen and it goes well. There have been infirmities. There have been sin uh, that have had a hold on somebody that, that has been removed, and that's healing. I, had a, I remember back when Kelly and I were dating almost 50, 60 years ago. Uh, we went to a little Nazarene church in Des Moines, Iowa, south side. And there was a couple there. Yeah, he was blind, and, uh, and she had MS. And uh, they, we did a healing service, which is not a, you don't really hear that about it, that in a Nazarene church, but we did a healing service. We anointed with oil. We prayed. And they came forward because they wanted to be healed. And we prayed over them, and n- nothing of what I just described to you changed. He was still blind, and she still had MS. And I remember somebody saying to him later, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that the Lord didn't heal you. What are you talking about? He has healed me. He, he made me realize that he gave me this for, as a gift. He gave this to her. This is to be used to further his kingdom. And I, did, I struggled with that, but I don't anymore. And, and God, so God has healed my heart and healed my mind so that I can use it. So God does healing in a lot of different ways. And there, there are demons being cast out here. I believe that there is demon possession today. I just want to tell you today, if you have something that needs to be healed, take it before the Lord and see what he can do with that. He doesn't always do what I think. He always does what's best for me. So we see this healing going on. People are crowding. They're coming from all over the place. He can't even get, people are just wanting to just reach. I mean, wouldn't you, if you had a, maybe you have something here that you're struggling, wouldn't you, if you saw Jesus, wouldn't you just fight to just, just, just touch him? I would. I'd want to get that close to him, just to touch him. Many were coming for other reasons and they weren't staying. Some came for what they could get from him, and some do that today. And then he says to these demons at the end, that's an odd thing in there, because he's casting out demons, so demons are present because they've just been cast out of people. And they want to say who he is, call him out. You'd think that'd be a great thing. But it's not the right time for him to be announced as the Son of God. And they were doing it for another reason. They were doing it so they could try and control him and control the narrative at that time. And he tells them, you need to stop because, first of all, my announcement will not come from demons. It will come from another place, but it won't come from demons. So he tells them, shut your mouth. That's not what we're here for right now. He draws away in this boat to go and share the gospel. I wish I could have been there. That could have been one of the instances where Mark was at. He might have been in the crowd at that time, standing back and watching Jesus out on the water and him preach the gospel and share. And then verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that they might send them out to preach and to have the authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he called Peter, who was the narrative that we're following here. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who he called Sons of Thunder. We've talked about that in the past. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, 
James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and, of course, Judas Iscariot. I think this is kind of one of the most important things, and it's just, that's it, done, and we move on. He just put, he just called the 12 men that would, would further the gospel, that would spread the word, that would be so important in use. And we really don't know a lot about them. We did see him already in Mark, if we're following Mark, that he, 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 there's four of them, three or four of them that were mentioned in chapter one. I think it was four of them. But the rest were just people in the crowd. So we know that people were coming because they wanted to be healed. They wanted something for Jesus. But there were people that continued to follow him. Those were the, those were the people that were, wanted to hear the message. They wanted to grow from the message. They'd seen this miraculous signs that he had done, but they knew that his message was important. And these men were there. They were obviously growing in what they were hearing from him. But the cool part was this. They were nobody. They were nobodies. No offense. They're just like you and I. I'm a nobody. And here he, can you imagine him doing that? It was very, we don't get a big deep description of it. By the way, it's important, before he called the 12, he did something that is not made mention of in the book of Mark, but it is in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, on uh, one of those days Jesus went up on the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. So before this decision was made, though he may have seen them in the crowd, and he's the son of God, so he knows who they are, and so we're interacting with them, but he went to seek the Father's direction because he wanted God's perfect will. We got God's permissible will where he'll let us, well, you kind of didn't do it right there, and sometimes he can bless that. We have God's perfect will, which is where God says, this is how you do it, this is who I want, and I believe that God said, these are the men that I want, and he, and he called them. But there's something in there that may not stand out to you, but it does me. It, it says, it says, if I turn back to the right page here, it says, uh, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. I believe God talks to a lot of people and he asks things of them that they, they don't answer. God wants to use you. Maybe you're one of those people here where God's been speaking to you. And we have a teaching team here right now, pastors. We have, we have Dwayne down here, myself, Pastor John, Pastor Jim. But I truly believe that within this fellowship, God's been telling somebody, it's time for you to step up. I want to use you more. I want to be used in a different way. And it's not just about being taking a position of teaching as a pastor or something, but there's something God's been asking you, and maybe you've been telling him no. And I want to encourage you not to tell him no. My father, I've, I've talked about him many times up here at the pulpit. My father, he's gone on to be with the Lord. Um, he passed away from uh, prostate cancer. But, and in his last days, I bet he preached more sermons to more people than any pastor on any pulpit ever where he shared the gospel with everyone that he, he could, people that wanted to listen and people that didn't want to listen. He was on it. If you knew my dad, I mean, some of you met my dad. My, this funny side story, totally side story. I don't even know why this is in my head. But he came to this church one time, and I remember um, Alicia Moda coming up to me and saying, there's this weird guy in the foyer asking the ladies if they want a kiss. My dad had this thing where in his suit pocket he would always have chocolate kisses. And so he would catch you and go, well, hello, doll. He always called you doll, sis, something like that. And he would say, 
you look like you could use a kiss this morning. Well, that's freaking people out in the foyer. I'm like, Dad, stop. You're catching people off guard, you know. Well, that was my dad. But when my dad, I went to, to my dad one day when Kelly and I had, uh, we'd been praying and God was obviously leading us in a direction to step into ministry. And uh, it, it was time to tell the parents. And I remember sitting with my dad in, uh, I don't know if it was our living room or his living room, and I was sharing with him that God had a calling on my life and that I was going to answer that call. And then he shared with me, and he was in tears. My dad cried all the time. He had tears. He was telling me, I'm so thankful that you said yes, son, because I want to tell you a story. Because when I was a younger man in my 20s, when I came to know the Lord, he said that God started asking me to step up and to be a pastor, to lead that, to do that, to teach the gospel. And I kept telling him, no, 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 I can't do that. And he said, I do remember after so many times to tell him, I remember the moment when I said to God, no, I won't do it. And he said, I heard this voice say, okay. And he said, God never asked me again to do that. He goes, and I, said, I said no too many times. So I, I encourage you, God, God knows what you want to do and what you're willing to do. And if you harden your heart to the point where you don't want to do it, God will say, okay. But these men did not. And how great that was that these men who were probably carpenters and fishermen and all kinds of other things that not only that Jesus called them, but they were going to be empowered to teach the gospel, to teach men, to teach these people, and to drive out demons. I wish I had that power. Well, I probably do have that power, actually. I think we probably all do have that power. We do, right? We stand in the light. Demons can't stand anywhere that, that, that where the light is at, so we show the light. But that... Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were just unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. God can use you. God wants to use you. Everyone in this place wants to use you. You have a story. You have a past. You have a life that can, God can use to bring others to salvation. Unfortunately, sometimes in this world that we live in right now, it's too easy. You know, Pastor Jim talks about the distractions of the world. Often we do get distracted to the point where we, we, we some kind of think, well, we're going to go into church and I'm a believer and I do read my Bible, but it doesn't really show in the rest of our lives. And I think it's time that the church wake up and realize we got a little time left. So we should probably find every opportunity that we can to tell somebody that Jesus loves them. Who's Jesus? Well, let me tell you. We just happened to study about Jesus this morning. I can tell you a little bit of something about him. You have a responsibility. Mm. What God can do with just a simple man when he calls that you answer. I mean, they didn't say it, but I got to believe these guys were like standing out there hanging out, and Jesus goes down, and he calls them up, and they're like, me? No. Seriously? Me. Of course, they probably didn't at that point know why he was calling them, but what a great place. Very little said, but these men would change the world. Verse 20. Go on and yet another step. We're on the lake. Now we're, we're, we're entering a house. Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not 
even able to eat. They were packing in the house. You can imagine what this must be like at this point. People were hearing from all across the countryside that this man, look what he's doing. He's healing and he has these really profound words and they're coming from everywhere and trying to push into wherever they were. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him and they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down for Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. And how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, then the house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself, it is divided and he can't stand and his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Let's just look at this a little bit. This was probably Peter and Andrew's house in Capernaum, possibly. And the crowd was heavy. And you got to admit, at this point, we see what his family comes and says he's crazy. At this point, this has got to be like a circus out there. I mean, the people piling in, coming from everywhere. Things are going on. People are telling stories. They're trying to get to Jesus. At least to some, it may have seemed out of control or seemed like a circus. So when his family comes... It would seem weird the family of Jesus would think he's crazy and that they want to pull him out of this place. And it doesn't refer just to his family, but it was also close friends of his as well. So why would they think that Jesus was out of his mind and crazy? Well, let's look at a few things. First, he left a prosperous building, a, a, a business to become a, an itinerant preacher. And you've got to believe that I mean, he was a carpenter. I bet he was one of the best carpenters. I mean, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> Jesus don't cut corners, right? His work has got to be exceptional from the hands of God. He had an exceptional business, which was probably a profitable business. He was doing well for himself. The religious and political leaders plotted to murder him, but he didn't back down. And so they were kind of afraid for the sake of Jesus that something might harm them. And to see him not backing down, again, another reason why they may think he's crazy Huge crowds began to follow Jesus, and they knew how such fame and attention and celebrity could go to someone's head. So they may think he's just he think he's getting all full of himself. He showered, uh, or he showed spiritual power and ministry he had never really shown earlier in his life. Never healing the, somebody when he was working in the shop. They said you know something was very wrong here, and he picked at this point you got to believe some people are standing around going, those guys get to be apostles? I mean, come on, me, you know. This, they picked the most unlikely group of disciples. And so his judgment was possibly questioned at that point. But there was one last straw. One last straw. They didn't, they see that he couldn't take time to eat. Now, Many would worry if they didn't see me eating. That was a joke. They see that Jesus wouldn't even take time to take care of himself. They're thinking, oh my gosh, he's putting himself in danger. He won't even eat. And so it seems a little strange that his family didn't support what he did and didn't see what was going on. But we see that the brothers of Jesus didn't really believe in him until after his, his resurrection. And during his earthly ministry, they prodded him all the time to prove himself. And then come these accusations from this, these religious leaders. Now, 
we see that there wasn't just the ones that were fallen. They'd sent some people down to check out this, this Jesus and see what he's doing. And so yeah, they say he is possessed by Beelzebub, another slang word for Satan, that he is, he is, he is Satan himself. And I got to believe he just kind of chuckled. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Are you serious? That doesn't even make sense. Let me, you know, and he talks to these guys in a parable and says, how can, if I'm Satan, why would I drive out demons? You know, if I'm Satan, why would I want to stop any of that? Why would Satan tear down his own kingdom? Why would he do that? That doesn't even make sense. I wonder if there was some, they're, they're whispering among themselves after he shared that little bit. Their, their, their accusation was, was very comical. And I, it doesn't say Jesus laughed, but I think he did. Like I said, it didn't say everything in there. i got to believe Jesus. Goes, oh, here we go again. Would you guys just get it? Just get it? Instead, he speaks to them in a language that hopefully they can understand. This is not the only time that Jesus is going to be accused of having a demon by what they're seeing. And I think it would, I think it would happen today. I think it would happen today. If he was here doing the miracles he was, I think there would be accusations of, of, of witchcraft, of, of, of demon possession. In John chapter 10, verse 20, it says, Many of them said, He's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? And then also in John chapter 8, 48, the Jews answered him and said, Aren't, you, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? <clears throat> so he's had that accusation before. He'll have it again from those who don't understand who he is and what he's doing. But then he uses this little... Uh, he says this little, this little thing in here that could just be obscured by it, but he talks about the, the strong man. I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan. What he's basically talking about is that he is, he says this uh, here, it says, of house to devise. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. A little something thrown in there that I believe what he was saying is, yeah, let me tell you about the strong man that we're talking about, Satan. Uh, I'm going to tie him up, and I'm going to rob his house. And what I'm robbing is us. What he came to rob and steal from Satan was us. And I'll tell you what, if you're not saved here today, you are owned. You are owned by Satan. Owned by Satan. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's your, you're his by default. But when you ask Jesus to come into your heart, he steals you away from Satan. He washes you in the blood of Jesus Christ. He forgives you of all of your sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins. You're washed clean. There's no worry ever again. But it does go on to talk about something that throw off a lot of people. And that starts in verse 28. I tell you, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Hmm. So let's start from the beginning of that. There is no sin that you have ever committed that God can't forgive. You know, we, we struggle with that sometimes because we see the people who are murderers and rapists, pedophiles, and the people that have, that have done horrific things in life. And, you know, in our flesh, we're like, they shouldn't be. But they can be. They can be saved. They can be forgiven. They're still going to have to have the consequences of their sin. But, but they can be saved. 
And if you ever question that, and I've been very, uh, I've been very open from this pulpit over the years about the man that I was before. You don't know that man, and if you did, I mean, so some things I would be very embarrassed to tell you of what I did and what things I was involved in, but I can tell you this. In a little church in the middle of Nebraska, during a worship service, the worship was being sung to close out the service, and my pastor, the church that I attended, kind of, got up, walked around, and came in the row before me, turned around to me and said, do you want to know Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I do. And I gave my life to Christ then. And I can tell you this, that every sin that I had ever committed, that my Lord and Savior cast to the deepest, darkest ocean and, for, and has forgiven it and forgotten it. And when I stand, sit here and I come in during the week and I pray over here, usually in one of these front chairs, and I look up at the Lord's face, I don't see a God going, man, well, there's Tracy again. What would you do this week? I see a Savior that looks at me and goes, I see, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm, I've, I've, I've done wrong again. And he goes, what are you talking about? You're my boy. I love you. He does not look at us through that sin anymore. But it does talk about this sin that some people struggle with. I think I have committed the unforgivable sin, and I can't get saved. He just said every sin can be except for this one. And it's not, I've heard people say, I use the Lord's name in vain. That's not the unforgivable sin. I think we've all probably at some point in time, if we lived any life uh, outside of Christ, we've probably all cursed God at some point in time in our lives. I'm angry. I don't understand something. God, why did you do this? We've probably all done that. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying no to the Holy Spirit's call upon your heart so much and for so long that your heart becomes hardened off. It basically is this. God says, I want to save you, and you say, no, I don't want to be saved. God can't save you. That's the simplest definition I can put on this. If you just say, no, I don't want to be. At some point in time, you may either die, or maybe your heart becomes so hard that you don't want to be saved. But, the, I, but still, and I was talking to Pastor Jim, they go, but somebody could be committing the unforgivable sin and still get saved later if they came to a place where they changed their heart. They could. They, they could possibly do that. I mean, we're talking about the Pharisees here, but the reason Jesus is sharing this story is because I don't believe that the Pharisees had gotten that hard yet. But he was warning them, you guys are going in the wrong direction, and you are in danger of committing that sin. And they were very much in danger of doing that by attributing Satan for Christ's authenticity and the signs and wonders that he was doing. The danger, there is a danger of, of missing God's forgiveness if they do not receive the truth. And that's what he's sharing this with for them uh, to hear so that they will receive the truth. Clear on that? If you're here today, if you have a desire, if you even think you've committed it, you haven't. Because you have a conscience and God is speaking to you and he wants you to come to know the Lord. If you have a sin that you think, I can't get past, I just can't. I've had people tell me that. I want to get saved, but you don't know what I've done. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God can save anything. He can forgive anything. You may have a 
hard time. And that's part of the process because when we get saved, sometimes my mind's sharp. I can, well, kind of. My wife's laughing. Sometimes I leave the water running in the bathroom and then go some part of the house. Did you ever do that? Lately, that's been my thing. I don't know why. (coughs) And I say, well, I meant to because rinsing the drain. But I can remember sins that I committed. Just in sharing that with you earlier, that I can remember very despicable things I did as a young person. (coughs) But God forgave me of every one of them. I may still have to suffer the consequences for some of the things I did. There are things that I've done that are lasting on my body and things in life. But God doesn't look at me through those. And then we close out the chapter. In verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Here they are again, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He's kind of sitting in this room, gathered up with people. I'm sure these were not, doesn't say that they were smashing up against him to get healed. These were people who were listening to him talk. He was sharing the truth. He was sharing the words that his father had given him to share with these people. They're all sitting around talking about it. And, and then this message comes in his ear. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister. His family called him crazy. They wanted him to stop what he was doing. They were trying to get him. They are trying to take him away. And Jesus looks at this crowd and says, family, you're my family. You're my family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. What's that song we sing? I am a friend of God. Hmm. We have a relationship with God and we have that close family relationship if we will do what God instructs. And this is how he instructs us. First thing you need to know is you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ for this book to make any sense whatsoever. Unfortunate part, when we talk about Pharisees and people coming against us anymore, I see that there are a lot of people in the world who love to read this like the Pharisees did because they want to find fault in what the Christian church is doing or what they're doing or what they're not doing or where they fall short. I've had more people try and call me on that who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, so they don't know what this word really means. They don't truly understand it, and they want to come against me. You first have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you don't have one, guess what? You can come today, and we'll come down and pray with you, and you can make sure you're saved. The next thing that you need to do, and it tells us then, when once we do that, we receive the Holy Spirit. And so that Holy Spirit begins to talk to us. But it is our responsibility as the church that's been Christians for a while. We need to help you understand how to hear that voice and how to pay attention to that voice and then you need to be in God's word which is what we study here verse by verse all the way through you need to be spending time in prayer and asking God for direction and guidance in the smallest things and the biggest things and when God instructs you will know that God is saying that it is God's voice you will know the shepherd's voice you will I promise you if you do these things and then walk according to it It's really that easy. So as we look back at what we studied today, there's several things to me that stood out that that are points 
as I look at this scripture. One is, I want to watch Jesus closely, not like the Pharisees did for fault finding, but with a heart's desire to hear the truth of his words and his actions. Even as I'm reading this today, I want to look and try and understand my Savior more and more on a personal level. Next thing is, is I want, come to Jesus. When he calls, come. You can, he can heal you of many things, but the true healing is when you accept him as Lord and Savior in your life. That's the true healing that we'll experience. But if he's, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is wooing all of us. You know, if you're here and you're not saved, that something made you come here today. You've been hearing something. You've been feeling something. That's the Holy Spirit saying, come. Come. Come, I've got something for you. When he calls, just come. Next thing is God can use you. God can use you. Ordinary people to do amazing things. If you'll just follow him and walk according to his will. And I believe that we have the same power that Jesus did. If there is a demon present in someone and you see that demon, I believe that you, walking under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, can cast a demon out. You have that power. And that's, I go to that because that seems like the ultimate thing that we could do, right? I mean, you can lead someone. You can talk to somebody about Jesus. You can share the gospel with them. You can lead them. to. The, you can tell them why they need to be saved. But a demon? I had somebody question that one time. They called me to pray over somebody, and they said, well, have you been given the power to drive out demons? Yeah. God can use you ordinary people, all of us. There's no difference. God calls us all to different things, but he's calling us to serve him and to share the gospel. Next thing is God can and will forgive every sin that you've ever committed. You haven't done anything that he can't forgive. And lastly, if we will do the will of the Father, we are in the family of God. Amen? A simple narrative of following after Jesus, but let's continue to follow him. Let's continue as we follow through this gospel. Next week we're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to be talking about the sower. There's some deep stuff there. That's Pastor John. Bring lots of questions for him afterwards. This is great, though, following after Jesus. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that crowd? Put yourself in. When you read through it, take some, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you sometime within the next week or so that you sit down and you go, you know, in a couple hours i got to go do something. I'm going to start at the, bit, the beginning of Mark, and I'm going to read all the way through it. Pick whatever version of the Bible you like to use and just read all the way through it to get a good context of it. And then we come back and we revisit it. You, you've, you've already been there. You've already experienced it a little bit. And just one last thing, if you're not saved in this place, please don't leave here today without making that commitment. All you got to do is come up here, someone will, we'll be up here, Dwayne's up here, I'm up here, we'll, we'll pray with you. And if you're beating yourself up over sins that you've committed and God's forgiven, stop it. Satan tries to paint this picture to make you worthless. And if you believe that you are still held under the sin that God's already forgiven, then you'll be worthless. But what freedom can be brought when we realize, eh, nope, it's not there anymore. Sorry, Satan, you're just a liar. The band comes forward. Let's pray. Father God.